0: Throughout history, there are certain people and characters who are forever defined by their tools of the trade. For example, legendary New York Yankee Babe Ruth was known for his Louisville Slugger that he would carve a notch into each time he hit a home run. King Arthur had his sword Excalibur that united Camelot. The Norse god and Marvel superhero Thor is best known for his magic hammer Mjolnir. And in horror films, there are a whole slew of characters who have become known for their weapons of choice. The character Ash from the Evil Dead films had his chainsaw hand and his boomstick. Likewise, the character Leatherface brandished the titular weapon that gave the Texas Chainsaw Massacre its title. Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street had his metal glove with its razor-sharp claws. The killer from I Know What You Did Last Summer used a hook which was borrowed from a popular urban legend. Michael Myers from Halloween had his butcher knife, while Friday the 13th's Jason Voorhees is best remembered for his machete and hockey mask. But if we look to the real world, throughout the annals of true crime, there is one tool in particular that has earned a reputation all its own for sheer bloody destruction. The axe. Hand axes are among the oldest tools ever found by archaeologists. By the late 19th and early 20th century, axes had become one of the most common tools you could find anywhere. Since most homes throughout the United States back then had either a fireplace or a wood-burning stove, you could find one lying around on practically every porch in the country. By that token, it seems almost logical why axes would end up being used in so many horrific crimes more than a century ago. In 1828, William Stewart, the captain of a trading vessel, the Mary Russell, went on a murderous rampage against his own crew while on a trip to Barbados. He killed each of the seven crewmen by binding their hands and feet and pinning them to the ship's deck. Then Captain Stewart proceeded to bash in their skulls with a crowbar and chopped them into pieces with an axe. In 1833, a woman named Frances Frankie Stewart Silver was hanged for murdering and dismembering her husband with an axe than disposing of the body parts by burning them in a fireplace. In France in 1878, all four members of the Vasselet family were hacked to death. Police soon arrested the family's hired hand, Pierre Provost, but he somehow managed to escape and was never heard from again. In 1885, the city of Austin, Texas, was terrorized by their own horrific axe murderer, a maniac who claimed the lives of eight people that came to be known as the Servant Girl Annihilator. In August 1892, Lizzie Borden became synonymous with the axe after the brutal murder of her parents in a story that would be forever immortalized in a well-known nursery rhyme. In June of 1912, the small town of Villisca, Iowa was rocked to its core when someone snuck into the Moore residence and bludgeoned to death all six members of the family. Along with two young neighbor girls who were spending the night, the killer was never caught. Then, six years later, in 1918, another axe-wielding maniac began to stalk victims throughout New Orleans. This particular axe man became famous for not only getting away unseen with the murder of a dozen people during his reign of terror, but for one night in particular when he sent a letter to the local newspaper in which he expressed his love of jazz music. The killer then threatened to take another life that very night unless jazz was played throughout the city. That evening, every bar and dance hall was packed to capacity, and every musician in town was booked as jazz was played in every home. No one died that night. Many of these cases I've mentioned have become famous in true crime lore. Hundreds of books, movies, TV shows, and podcasts have been made about them. I myself have spoken about several of these cases in depth. It's difficult to say why some murders become famous while others are almost forgotten to history. There is one case in particular I'd like to tell you about that happened around the same time as all these others. One that was way more brutal and claimed the lives of far more victims that almost no one has heard about. Between January 1911 and April 1912, a killer left a trail of dead bodies across western Louisiana and eastern Texas. By the time the killing stopped, it's commonly believed that at least 35 people were dead. Police would eventually arrest and convict a most unlikely suspect in the case. An 18-year-old girl named Clementine Barnabé. Now, if the idea of a teenage girl being a vicious, axe-wielding serial killer sounds far-fetched to you, the story becomes even wilder when you hear that Clementine may have been the leader of a cult of serial killers, all of whom were dedicated to murder with the axe. I'm Nate Hale, taking another whack at history. Hashtag Epstein Didn't Kill Himself. And this is The Conspirators. In the case of Clementine Barnabé, race is almost certainly the primary reason you've likely never heard of her before. As I'm sure you're aware, racism was rampant throughout the rural South at the start of the early 20th century. Often, the murders of black people would go underreported in the local newspapers. That is, if they were even written about at all. This was the case with the Texas Servant Girl Annihilator murders, which barely warranted the police's attention, until the day the killer decided to switch tactics and murdered a white woman. Then, suddenly, the entire city went into panic mode, Gun stores sold out their inventories overnight, armed mobs took to the street hunting the killer, and yet the murderer was never caught. The axe murders in 1911 and 1912 didn't cause quite such a stir, and race was almost certainly the key factor why. If you research the story because so many of Clementine Barnabé's victims in Louisiana were of mixed race, you'll often see the string of killings referred to by the rather shameful name, the Mulatto Axe Murders. It can be difficult to pin down just when the first murder occurred, partly because of the spotty record-keeping by the local law enforcement back then, and partly because Clementine's own story changed so often. She personally confessed to committing 17 murders by her own hand all before she turned 18 years old. Although the body count attributed to her and her followers is often reported as being at least 35 victims, that number may have been much, much higher than that. The earliest known victim Clementine was said to have claimed credit for was Edna Opelousas and her three children, who were all decapitated and dismembered in Rain, Louisiana, in November 1909. If Clementine's confession is to be believed, this would mean she murdered the four members of the Opelousas family when she was just around 14 years old. Just over a year later, on February 11, 1911, Walter Byers, his wife, and son were all found brutally murdered in their beds in West Crowley, Louisiana. The papers would later describe the family as having been, quote, brained with an axe. All three family members had been bludgeoned to death with the flat side of an axe that was found standing in a corner near the head of the bed, next to a bucket full of blood. Bloody footprints covered the floor. Police could find no evidence anything had been stolen. Whoever the perpetrator was, it appears they had gone there with the express purpose of murdering the family and collecting as much of their blood as they could. Around two weeks later, on February 24th, the killer struck again, this time in the home of the Andrus family, who lived in nearby Lafayette. At about 7 a.m., Nina Martin was just sitting down at her kitchen table when her son, Lesame Felix, burst into the kitchen, shouting that her sister, Meme and her brother-in-law, Alexander, had been murdered. Nina rushed to her sister's house only to find the entire family had been slaughtered. But this time the killer had taken things a step further. After the victims were dead, the killer took the time to arrange their bodies in a grisly, ritualistic display. The remains of the two children, a baby and a toddler, were still in bed. But Alexander and Meme's bodies were both propped up and made to kneel at the bedside, as if they were praying over their children. Once again, the murder weapon was determined to be an axe. And also once again, nothing had been stolen from the home. It appeared the killer entered the house through the kitchen door sometime in the middle of the night. And although police would question a number of suspects, none of these leads led anywhere. On March 22, 1911, Louis Cassaway, his wife, and their three children were found dead in their home near Beaumont, Texas. As in all the other murders, their bodies had been battered and their skulls crushed by an axe. This case was a little different than the others, though, since in the previous crimes all the victims had been black. But this time, Lewis's wife was white. This led investigators to concoct a theory that the murderers hated mixed-race couples. One of the police noted that such feelings were common around the area, and few people could abide seeing a white woman married to a black man. Back in Lafayette, Paris, Sheriff Louis Lacoste was put in charge of investigating the Andrus murders. He received a tip from the common-law wife of a man named Raymond Barnabé, in which she said Raymond had admitted to her he committed the Andrus murders. Barnabé had been in and out of trouble with the law, and Sheriff Lacoste became strongly convinced he had the guilty party in both the Andrus and Byers murders. He initially arrested Barnabé, but was then forced to release him for lack of evidence. After investigating further, Sheriff Lacoste re-arrested the man and placed him in the Lafayette Parish Jail. Barnabé's trial began on October 19th. A few members of his own family testified against him, including his common-law wife Nina, his son Zephyrin, and daughter Clementine. Nina testified that on the night of the Andrus murders, her husband left home and hopped on a freight train around 7 p.m., telling her that he had to go to Broussard on business. She made a special point of saying that when he left, he had been wearing a blue shirt or jumper. He didn't return home until 2 a.m. the following morning, during which time he returned home in a foul mood. He was angry that she hadn't saved supper for him and that he'd lost his favorite pipe on the train. After he got done fuming, her husband went to bed. Clementine offered a somewhat different account, this time adding in several additional details that made her father sound even more guilty. She said that Raymond had come home in the early morning hours and the blue shirt he was wearing was drenched in blood and brain matter. Raymond stalked around the house angrily, puffing on his pipe, although his wife claimed he had lost it. Clementine testified she took her father's bloody clothes and washed them herself. She told the jury that Raymond had confessed to her that he had just killed an entire family, and he threatened to do the same to the rest of them if they didn't keep their mouths shut. Zephyrin told a similar tale. He testified that his father showed up that night wearing only an undershirt and trousers, both of which were covered in gore. Raymond demanded that Zephyrin bring him his pipe, after which he shouted that he just killed the entire damn Andrus family, and the rest of you better keep quiet if you know what's good for you. Zephrin broke down in tears on the witness stand, begging the court to keep his father behind bars because he was terrified of what he might do to them if he got out. The Stevens family who lived next door to the Barnabas shack also testified against him in the trial. The authorities characterized the Stevens family as, quote, representatives of the best of their race who were clean, modest, direct, and uncontradictory. The authorities made a special point to contrast them with the Barnabas, in particular Clementine and Zephyrin who they said had very bad reputations and were nothing more than filthy, shifty degenerates. The jury convicted Raymond Barnaby of the murders of the Andrus family. Immediately after, the defense attorneys filed motions for a new trial for multiple reasons. They said their client had been drunk during the trial, diminishing his ability to defend himself, and that the prosecution failed to introduce a motive for the crimes. Because of those factors, along with some sloppy handling of the evidence, on October 27, 1911, the court granted Raymond Barnaby a new trial. Raymond was sent back to the Lafayette-Paris jail to await his new trial, but then, on November 27, 1911, Lafayette, Louisiana police discovered the badly mutilated bodies of Norbert Randall and his family in their tiny cabin on Lafayette Street. The other victims were his wife, Azima, and their four children, eight-year-old Albert Seiss, six-year-old Renée, five-year-old Norbert Jr., and two-year-old Agnes. The bodies of the family members had been laid out on two beds. Police found an axe leaning near the foot of one of the beds. It had been washed to blood. The medical examiner would later determine that Norman Randall had been shot through the head prior to being beaten with the blunt head of the axe. This led law enforcement to come to the conclusion that since Raymond was in custody, there must be more than one murderer lurking around town. The day after the Randall murders, Sheriff Lacoste zeroed in on Clementine Barnaby after finding a complete set of women's clothes in her room, covered in blood and bits of human brain. Sheriff Lacoste arrested Clementine, but he still couldn't believe a young woman could have committed all these brutal crimes on her own. So he also arrested her brother Zephyrin and two of his associates, Edwin Charles and Gregory Porter. When Sheriff Lacoste brought Clementine in for interrogation, he confronted her with the pile of bloody clothes found in her closet. Clementine just laughed it off and denied having anything to do with the crimes. Police thought her reaction was odd and decided to hold her while they continued to gather more evidence. Zephrin turned out to have a solid alibi for the night of the murders, but he too was held over along with his compatriots until that information could be confirmed. The sheriff's department sent the bloody clothing to New Orleans for further scientific and chemical analysis. While this was going on, Clementine maintained her innocence but still offered no explanation as to where the bloody clothing had come from. Several people came forward in Clementine's defense telling police she had been, as they described, running the streets that night, and couldn't possibly have been involved in the Randall murders. Police theorized that Clementine went to the Randall residence and picked up an axe the family had lying around outside. Norbert Randall, the father, would have been the first to die since he was the biggest and strongest, and would have caused the most trouble. Then his wife would have been next, followed by the children. The coroner noted that Norbert actually died from a gunshot wound and that the axe wounds occurred post-mortem, although police were never able to uncover the pistol that the killer had used. The sheriff maintained that Clementine couldn't possibly have committed the murders on her own and that she must have had accomplices. But with no real evidence to hold them, Zephryn, Edwin Charles, and Gregory Porter were all set free. Investigators continued to look into Clementine's background and began to uncover what they believed to be a possible spiritual motivation for the murders. Sheriff Lacoste learned that several of the victims were members of the same church, one that often gets reported as the Sacrifice Church, or the Church of Sacrifice. Sheriff Lacoste came to believe some of the church members were so deeply moved by religion that they began to take the Christian ideas of sacrifice literally. No matter the motive, the sheriff firmly believed he had the guilty party sitting in his jail where they couldn't harm another soul. That is until January 18, 1912, when more bodies were discovered. It was on that day when Harriet Crane from the town of Prole realized she hadn't seen her neighbors, the Warners, for some time. They were a mixed-race family whose father had run off and abandoned his wife and children four years earlier. That left Marie Warner to care for her three children by herself. Harriet asked her elderly neighbor, Dorny Birdson, if she had seen Marie or the children lately. Birdson said that he had not. The two of them walked across the street to check on the family, only to find the back door to the tiny house ajar. Crane and Birdsong were too frightened to enter the home themselves. So they asked a young man named Ben Robinson to go inside and make sure the family was all right. When Robinson went in, he found the mother and four children all horribly mutilated and laid out across a mattress in the front room. The Acadia Parish sheriffs found a bloody axe in the same room, along with two sets of fresh footprints in the mud outside the back door. Bloodhounds were gathered to follow the tracks, but police soon called off the search after the hounds lost the scent. Just three days later, on January 21, 1912 Police in Lake Charles, Louisiana Discovered the bodies of Felix Broussard His wife and three children As in all the other crimes Their bodies were laid out on a bed Their skulls crushed by the blows of an axe The killer entered the house Through a kitchen window Police found the axe shoved under the bed This time though The killer left an additional clue A bible quote Written in blood on the front door When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgotteth not the cry of the humble. Below that were two more words that perhaps gave a name to the murderers. Human 5. Similar to the murders of Walter Byers and his family a year earlier, the killer had also placed a bucket beneath the heads of the murdered children to collect their blood as it gushed from their wounds. When word reached Sheriff Lacoste about the latest killings, he felt he had to take some bold action to make it stop. Since by now he firmly believed the Church of Sacrifice was at the center of the killings, he arrested the church's leader, Reverend King Harris. Police interrogated Reverend Harris, who told them his church was a sect of the Christ-Sanctified Holy Church in Lake Charles, Louisiana. In fact, it's possible that the newspapers got the name wrong and misidentified the Sanctified Holy Church as the similar-sounding but far more ominous Church of Sacrifice. The reverend denied the accusations leveled against him in his church. He said his flock were faithful followers of Christ and that nothing they said or did could possibly have caused someone to become a murderer. By this point, the black residents of the area were demanding answers from the authorities. If they had the two accused murderers in custody, then why did the killings continue? Around this time, a successful black businessman named Deschotel received an extortion letter from what he said was a group known as the Black Hand. Black Hand were an early 20th century organized crime group from the Italian community in Louisiana. Deschotel claimed the note had been written in blood and it read that he should eat well and drink well in preparation for the death which will overtake him. News of this letter only further upset members of the black community but whoever sent the letter never followed through on the threat. An article published in the January 22, 1912 edition of the Daily Signal described the mounting tensions in the community. Lights are kept burning all night, the article described, and adult family members remain awake during the night. The citizens of Bro Bridge, Louisiana, a farming community just east of Lafayette, set up their own Citizens Watch Committee since they felt law enforcement was leaving them to fend for themselves. On Sunday, February 11, 1912, 150 black members of the community met at the Good Hope Baptist Church in Lafayette to discuss what else they could do to protect themselves. The group agreed to share any information they had with local law enforcement in the hope that it would lead to further arrests, and agreed to remain vigilant for anything or anyone acting suspiciously. But all this community action only appeared to push the killer or killers to further expand their hunting grounds. On Tuesday, February 20th, 1912, just nine days after the community meeting in the Baptist Church, another family was found brutally murdered in Beaumont, Texas. This time, the victims were the Dove family, 26-year-old Hetty Dove and three children, Ernest Dove, 14, Ethel Dove, 16, and Jamie Quirk, 13. This time, the axe used in the crime had been stolen from a house two blocks away, then wiped of all blood when the murderer was finished with it. Police immediately linked the crime with all the similar murders throughout western Louisiana. Sheriff Lacoste received an intriguing letter in the mail with a postmark from New Orleans that he paid little stock in, but added some interesting details to the already convoluted series of crimes. The badly written note stated there was a leader of a cult who went from town to town selecting victims for a blood sacrifice. The letter also raised the possibility that the two people being held in custody were the real puppet masters behind the string of axe killings. Although up till this point, Clementine had steadfastly maintained her innocence two weeks after the Dove murders, she surprised everyone by abruptly changing her story and personally confessed to committing 17 murders all before her 18th birthday. She told police she was born somewhere around St. Martinville, Louisiana and that she moved to the Lafayette area in 1909. It was there she said she suffered what she described as a life of degradation at the hands of white men. All the poverty and racism she encountered filled her heart with hatred. Once, she and four companions made their way to a remote region southeast of Lafayette, where they met an old black woman who showed them the ways of hoodoo and told them how they can improve their lives by dedicating themselves to the magical ways of their ancestors. They bought some conja bags from a so-called conjurer who ensured them they would protect them from detection by police in return for their blood sacrifices. Clementine became enamored with the idea of the conjup and voodoo. She went to in Louisiana, and into the dead of night she dressed as a man, stole an axe from someone's yard, and proceeded to commit her first sacrifice. At the time, she was only 14 years old. Her confession stated she snuck into a cabin in the middle of the night and found a woman sleeping on a bed. She bashed the woman's skull in by striking her on the right temple. The noise woke one of the children, but before he could get up to see what was happening, Clementine struck him dead as well. Then she moved on to the two other children and finished them off. She left the bloody men's clothing she wore behind at the scene of the crime, then she returned to her sister's house and cleaned herself up and later that same night boarded a midnight train to Lafayette. Clementine's confession went into even further detail with all the other victims she took credit for. She said that she only used a gun once to shoot Norbert Randall, and that the axe remained her weapon of choice. Her confession also made claims of necrophilia, and that she developed a thrill for fondling the genitalia of some of her victims after they were dead. Authorities still believed as a woman, Clementine couldn't possibly have acted alone. Although by now, they were becoming convinced she was the leader of a bloodthirsty voodoo cult. Clementine also stated in each instance the parents were the real goal and that she only murdered the children because she didn't want to leave any orphans behind. She said that she only testified against her father as a way of focusing on the blame on him and allowing her and her compatriots, including her brother Zephrin, to continue their evil magic rituals. When news of Clementine's startling confession reached local newspapers, members of the community were immediately torn about how much to believe. Stories about voodoo had long swirled around the black community in Louisiana, but a lot of folks just chalked it off as superstitious nonsense. The Lafayette Parish District Attorney Bruner came up with the theory that the Texas murders were copycat crimes and had nothing to do with the actual string of murders Clementine confessed to. Other local members of the community scoffed at the idea that an 18-year-old girl could have murdered so many people by herself with an axe. Although it's been pointed out in some accounts that Clementine was unusually big and strong for her age, and that she was actually taller than the members of the jury at her own trial. Sheriff Lacoste would ultimately come to believe Clementine's stories about leading a voodoo cult were nothing more than a flight of fancy. Clementine's story changed many times while she was in custody. Today, some historians have even wondered if all of it was made up and Clementine never murdered anyone. It's certainly possible. Many members of law enforcement were anxious to get the community off their backs and would have been looking for an easy scapegoat. Poor black people in the Deep South were often forced into confessing to crimes they didn't commit. On April 4th, 1912... District Attorney Bruner officially filed charges against Clementine Barnabé and the murders of Norbert Randall and his family. Newspapers would come to attribute 35 murders to Clementine and her accomplices, although some reports have put that number at around 50. By most accounts, Sheriff Lacoste appears to have done a rather thorough investigation. He went to New Iberia and tracked down the alleged conjurer, Joseph Thibodeau, who gave the conjure bags to Clementine and her companions. Although Clementine positively identified Thibodeau as the man who sold her the conjure bags, Sheriff Fontenot from Crowley remained skeptical of her story because of its many inconsistencies. Then on April 12, 1912, another family was murdered in their San Antonio, Texas home. The mutilated remains of William Barton, his wife, their two children, and his brother in law, Leon Avers, were found bludgeoned to death with an axe. Authorities surmised the same killer had struck again, dismissing D.A. Bruner's copycat theory. On April 21st, Zephyrin Barnabé further implicated himself and his family. He admitted that he and his father Raymond killed the Andrus family and that Clementine, another man named Ute Thomas, his son Darman, and another unidentified woman all aided in the crime. Thomas and his son were immediately arrested. Prosecutors still only tried Clementine for the Randall murder, since it was the crime they felt they could most confidently tire to. They also brought new charges against Raymond Barnaby. But while all these suspects remained in police custody, yet another axe attack occurred in San Antonio. This time was different, though, because on this occasion, the victims lived. On August 20th, an unknown attacker entered the home of James Doshleal, through an open kitchen window, and made his way into the man's bedroom. There he attacked James Dashliel's wife first, but she was able to protect her head by bearing the brunt of the blows against her forearm. James Dashliel woke up during the commotion and scared off the attacker by firing a shot at him that missed. The attacker fled into the night. On October 24th, the prosecution against Clementine Barnaby rested their case and the jury found the young woman guilty of the murders of the Randall family. With the leader of the so-called Church of Sacrifice sentenced to life behind bars, the authorities hoped her followers would soon slink away and give up their bloody obsession. But on November 22, 1912, another axe murder was discovered in Philadelphia, Mississippi that bore many similarities to all the other killings. This time the victims were William Walmsley, his wife, and their four-year-old child. Many investigators became convinced this was yet another sacrificial killing by Clementine Barnabé's cult. After that, according to most reports, the killing ceased, although it's difficult to say if this is actually the case or not. Some true crime historians have attempted to tie the murders to the crimes committed by the legendary ax man of New Orleans. Others have pointed out how many other Axe murders occurred around the country at this time. In 2017, author Bill James and his daughter Rachel published a book titled The Man from the Train, in which they attempt to tie together many of the Axe killings throughout the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, by pointing out how easily a serial killer could have gotten away with murder, simply by hopping on a train and committing murder from town to town. Bill and Rachel James point out the many similarities between the murders of the Moore family in Villisca and a number of other axe murders that occurred in various other states, all of which occurred near railroad tracks. Hundreds of axe murders were reported all around the United States in the early 20th century. They proposed that because law enforcement rarely shared information between jurisdictions, a reasonably careful murderer could have quite a prolific career back then. In the James's book, they point to a single suspect being responsible for anywhere from between 40 to 100 axe murders across the country. A German lumberjack named Paul Muller. This isn't to say that Muller, if indeed he was the prolific serial killer James proposes was responsible for any of the killings throughout western Louisiana and Texas. In fact, it seems unlikely considering how dissimilar those crimes were from any of the murders James describes in his book. But the point is, there was a massive rash of axe murders that occurred from the late 1800s all the way through the early 1920s. So at the same time, it's impossible to not consider that whoever committed the murders in 1911 and 1912 couldn't have kept on going for years after. Clementine Barnabé was sentenced to life in prison at Angola State Penitentiary. She was 19 years old at the time. Exactly what happened to her and her family after that remains murky. Her brother Zephyrin and father Raymond drop out of the historical record. One story claims Clementine attempted to escape from prison on July 31, 1913, but was caught the same day. She remained in prison for at least another 10 years although another story claims she underwent some sort of procedure to fix what was wrong with her, and that it allowed prison authorities to release her on good behavior. We don't know for sure what happened to Clementine after that. Although one curious story is often written about where, in 1985, a Louisiana woman went to visit her great-grandmother on her 103rd birthday. It was August, and there in the heat of the summer, as her grandmother sipped at her iced tea, The elderly woman kept everyone spellbound as she told them the terrifying story of Clementine Barnabé and her voodoo church dedicated to blood sacrifice. According to the young woman, her grandmother described Clementine as a black woman so beautiful with alabaster skin and eyes so piercing, she would look at you and turn you to stone. She said that Clementine would sometimes brutally whip her male suitors to show them who was in charge. The young woman held her grandmother's dry, withered hands and listened in rapt attention. As she described the fear, everyone felt that the Church of Sacrifice was going to murder them in the middle of the night. When the story was over, the girl asked her great-grandmother if any of it was true. The old woman simply smiled and took another sip of her tea. Then assured her it was just an entertaining story and nothing more. The old woman passed away not long after that but the story she told her granddaughter stuck with her. She went to the local library and looked up more information about Clementine Barnaby and tried to find out whatever happened to her. She found the only known photograph of Clementine Barnaby and got to stare into the eyes that could turn a man to stone for herself. It was then that she came to a horrific realization, for she had seen this same photograph already, and just recently... It was the very same photo that had been set out at her great-grandmother's funeral. The only known photo of the elderly woman when she was just 18 years old. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in hearing more about the axe murders that occurred during the first part of the 20th century, then I recommend you check out The Man from the Train by Bill James. He and his daughter Rachel lay out a compelling case that not only were the Veliska axe murders... Not just a one-off crime, but that a prolific serial killer got away with murder for years after. I want to thank my latest Patreon supporter, Kaylee, for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, if you're interested in becoming a patron, for a $2 donation, you can listen to a growing library of short Conspirators mini-episodes about all sorts of strange tales from history. Patrons at different levels can also get access to all sorts of other goodies, including stickers, magnets, and t-shirts. If you're not on Patreon, another easy way to help support the show is to recommend us to your friends and family and ask them to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're available in most of the places you get your podcasts, but by helping us out on Apple, you can most effectively help spread the love and help grow our own conspirators' cult. I also encourage you to reach out and drop us a line on our social media or by email. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook or just shoot us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.